Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, season one, Scaling and Design Team. I'm Sagi Schreiber, co-founder of Hacking UI. And today on the show, we have Joel Khalifa, who is a full-stack designer, specializes in user experience, visual design, and front-end development. Uh, Joel is a product design lead at DigitalOcean, a cloud hosting platform for developers. He's the founder of Design and Code, a nonprofit that teaches designers how to code and devs how to design. And he's also a front-end instructor at GA. So before we begin, just a shout out to our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by an event part, the Masters of Design Conferences. And they are celebrating their 10th anniversary this year and are hosting seven conferences spread out the U.S. And also we have some very cool news for you guys. Um, we've partnered with an event part to bring you the all-new Design Conferences Slack group. In this group, you'll be able to discuss anything from which conference should I attend to what are the coolest things to do in the city. You'll also have the chance to be in touch with speakers and meet other attendees before the conference even starts. So you can find the link to sign up on our site on hackingui.com slash design conferences. You're welcome to join us, introduce yourself, and we are waiting to see you there. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Scaling a Design Team. I am Sagi Schreiber and today with me is uh, Noam Lis. Hello again. Uh, so David couldn't be here with us today. Unfortunately, he's sick. But today we have on the show a very special guest, Joel Khalifa. Joel, how are you today? Pretty good. How are you? <laughs> All good. Happy to have you on the show. So tell us a bit about yourself. Like really, we'll, we'll make it as short as we can. Just a bit of background. How you came to be uh, in your profession in your role right now shoot sure kind of coincidentally i guess <laughs> i guess i started out as kind of a nerdy kid when i was 12 or so i learned photoshop and html at the same time so photoshop to make like educational counter-strike posters or whatever and uh html to make neopets websites so not the not the coolest <laughs> kid in the world but it ended up working out and so i kept doing that kind of stuff for a while and just getting better at it. At some point, I started working at an agency called Netcraft. Uh-huh. Ah, you worked at Netcraft. That's <laughs> amazing. I did. Yeah, not, uh, not for very long. Uh, just a bit of background, like for anyone who doesn't know. So, Joel, you, you lived in Israel most of your life. Yes. Before moving to the U.S. And we are from Israel. So Netcraft is an Israeli agency. So it's funny that for all of us, it's funny talking in English because our mother tongue is Hebrew, <laughs> but it's nice. It's like Netcraft, we all know, and it's a well-respected studio here in Israel. Yeah, so like a, an interaction design agency. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't there for that long, but it was kind of like my first dip into designing professionally. I was like a visual designer there, so I, it was kind of waterfally. There was a UX department and a visual design department, and then front end, back end, etc. Yeah, so I was a visual designer there. I was a bad visual designer there. If you look at like my first, I think my first dribble shot was from probably about six years ago from my time in that craft, just like fucking terrible. Six years ago, nobody had dribble back then. That's really like, it's nice. Yeah, I've been, I've been on Dribbble since pretty much the start of it, and I've never gotten a single invite. I'm just, like, so inactive. They haven't, like, given me a single one. Wait, you didn't get sense, then you didn't get an invite? 
I didn't get like an invite to give someone else, like not a single one in six years. Did you go pro? Did you pay him the 20 bucks? That's what I wanted I to didn't. ask. No, I didn't go pro. Oh my God, man. That's the secret. That you just have to pay him the 20 bucks, you get two invites every year. Yeah, that's the kit. That's what you do. That's why they want you to upgrade, man. They give you two invites every time you upgrade. That's yeah. my mistake. But I'm not going to grow a community that didn't give me any invites. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, we had a theory about it. Like, sorry? <laughs> we we had a theory about it because Noam has a Dribbble account. Just a bit of background. Like Noam is a designer here with me in Similar Web, a senior product designer. I am the director of design Similar Web, to whom doesn't know. And I met Noam way back when I have this Israeli blog, Israeli design blog called Pixel Perfect. And I made a big Dribbble contest to introduce Dribbble to the uh, Israeli design community. That was in 2012. And it was a very big contest, like 700 works were submitted in the contest. Uh, 100 out of them were chosen for a big gallery event. And out of those 100, we had like uh, 10 winners. And like the three first one won prizes. And Noam was the first one. Noam won this contest. That's how I met Noam. So Noam basically won the Dribble contest. And after that, after a year, he was on Dribble or something like that, right? You, you told me, Noam, like, I, I'm not getting any invites. Like, why is that? And I told you, you know what? I think you have to go pro or something like that, right? Yeah. So as soon as I went pro the next day, I think I had two invites. And I went pro once. I went, I went pro. It sounds like I'm an NBA baller. I went pro one more time and I got another two invites and then I stopped. <laughs> no more invites have come ever since. Yeah, I actually don't think it's related to pro. Like maybe pro, they give you more. But I have a lot of friends who are just like very active on Dribble and they get invites constantly. Maybe. Maybe it's the algorithm. I like the algorithm itself. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Anyways, no, but like besides this, that the theory, which is kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad about Dribble too much, you know, but I, I re- we really love Dribble. Dribble, I think, is amazing. Although all the critique about it lately and medium and stuff we still use it and view it every day for inspiration so it's great yeah no definitely it's an amazing source of inspiration for visual design for like kind of novel interactions it i mean it is what it is it's like a really beautiful place to go around yeah yeah in terms of product design like i don't think i've ever seen any on there yeah Unless you go to my profile, there's like no likes whatsoever. <laughs> right, I think the more product-oriented it is, the less likes you get. Yeah. If you think about what's there and go past the way it looks, you're not going to get any likes. If you if you look at it more than a second, you're not impressed, you move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like All right, so let's, uh, yeah, let's continue. <laughs> oh, sure. So I have shitty work on Dribbble. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and at some point I I figured that I wasn't, so I'd been doing this for, I don't know, about seven, eight years at this point. I've been designing posters, designing websites, building websites, doing a lot of stuff, but I I'd felt like I was kind of an amateur and, you know, looking at my work, I totally was. <laughs> I'd never learned like typography foundations or grid systems or color theory or any like actual UX methodologies. It was always just like, let me you know, read a list apart once in a while and let me, you know, just copy the stuff I'm seeing. Yeah. So I figured I should go to school, but I wasn't sure whether to go to design school or computer science. I was equally interested in both. Yeah. So I found a program in New York called Design and Technology at Parsons. And I came here for about like four years from 2010 to 2014 mm-hmm. and like learned a lot. And during that time, I was working at a startup called Amicus, which is a YC startup that does social outreach for nonprofits. So pretty like interesting work, makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> and yeah, and after school, probably just like a month or two after school, I, uh, I joined DigitalOcean as the first product designer. So above me, there's a creative director who hired me, mm-hmm. but I kind of like started out the product design team. Cool. All right. Great. So how many are you now, like in the team? Yeah. So my team is about, so I have five designers under me. So it's six product designers, including myself. And then above me, there's a creative director. And beside us, there's a brand design team who are about five people now. Five people when you say like five designers inside the brand team. Yeah. Four designers and a brand manager. Okay. All right, cool. And they're doing all the marketing work? Yeah, they're doing, like, if you open... So I don't know how much everyone knows about DigitalOcean, but DigitalOcean is a cloud platform for developers. Mm -hmm. 
So we have an entire website called our community, which is filled with like amazing tutorials for system administration. So how to like run Linux boxes, how to install like WordPress and stuff like that on DigitalOcean. And a lot of what our illustrators do uh, or visual designers is basically create really stunning graphics for each one of these tutorials. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also working on, you know, some other stuff I can't really talk about right now, but (laughs) just like they're stunning. They're crazily talented, like insanely talented. Cool. Yeah. All right. And uh, how do you see the processes going like in DigitalOcean? How do you how do you guys work in terms of product teams? Do you work agile? Do you work like waterfall? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> agile is the new waterfall, by the way. <laughs> how do you work? We work strict agile. No, I'm kidding. It's shifting and evolving. So when I joined, I think I'm kind of similar to your story. When I joined, we were about 60 people. Now we're, I think, going on 260, 270. Mm-hmm. And so everything changed. When I joined... I joined like a week after the first product manager joined. Mm -hmm. The product team is now eight product managers. So like everything has had to, they say like, you know, every time your company doubles in size, you have to relearn how to communicate because all of your methods so far just aren't going to work anymore. And I found that like several times over, like we've, we've shifted a bunch of times in how we work. Yeah. So the way we work now is we're very tight-knit with the product team. We actually just finished a design sprint where we took the entire product team and the entire design team, so like 16 people, and put them just like on the second... We just got the second floor of our building, so it's empty. (laughs) So we just like got into Teams and did like a Google Venture-style design sprint. Nice. How do you learn how to do that? Google Ventures has like a lot of resources on it. So like... Daniel Burke is a big proponent of it. He's written a lot about it, and other people at Google Ventures have written about it. Yeah. Also, ThoughtBot, if you know them, yeah. have like iterated on the process a lot and have a lot of resources out there for that, too. So mm-hmm. I just basically spent a couple of days with the help of one of uh, my designers, Earl Carlson, figuring out what we wanted to accomplish and how to take these methodologies and apply them to like the problem we were solving. Cool. Yeah, so it was like basically bottom line we were winging it based on like some information, but I think in hindsight like now that it's over and ended yesterday, it was really successful in some things. It was kind of a failure in some other things, but yeah. but I'm really happy we did it. Yeah, like are you going to repeat that process? Are you going to like iterate on the process and repeat it? Yeah, no question. So mm. probably not with the entire 16 people or maybe we'll do it quarterly. Yeah. But something like lower touch, definitely, I think we'll start doing that on a regular basis. Yeah. Okay. Do you have like some tips to share about like, you know, uh, stuff that you got out of those like uh, five days of design sprint? Yeah. Mostly I think what we got out is some interesting patterns or some interesting things we found that a lot of people were thinking about individually. Mm-hmm. So this was related to the future of our product and products. And we each kind of like... We're building the structures, so the information architecture, and then building UIs. And so you saw a lot of similarities between the way different people saw how the different aspects of our product are connected. Okay. And you also saw similar things in the UIs, just like things people wanted to explore. So yeah. we managed to get to a point where we had four different teams, so a lot of Basically, all of our designers code, most of our product managers code. Yeah, and we'll talk uh, that about that in a short while. <laughs> sure. So we got four teams, and we actually built prototypes the last day, and we managed to like get a lot of these different patterns and hopefully create prototypes that test a lot of the assumptions we're making, mm-hmm. and there wasn't much overlap. So we like tested four patterns that a lot of people were thinking about, which is really cool. Cool. I'm interested in that because we also had this kind of like mini hackathon going on uh, with the product team a few weeks back. And we, it's not, it wasn't no design sprint. It was only one day, but the whole product team got together and we did this kind of like, we worked on only one feature and we were divided into like five teams. And in the, in those five teams, I think the processes were very interesting to see at the, you know, eventually what each team came up with. And, 
I know that I learned a lot from that process. Uh, I can, for once, like I can give one tip that if anyone tries it, I know they do it in design sprints. One thing that I learned is let everyone sketch. Also product managers, also people who don't sketch, let the stakeholders sketch out their ideas into actual kind of like wireframes on paper. Because when they do that, they are confronted with their own thoughts that they think is so easy to, to do, but then they're like, oh, okay, now I have to sketch it. How do I do it? And then we put the sketches together and compared features and voted on specific features on the page, on the sketches that we saw. So, and then we came up with our own kind of sketch, like the whole team together. And that was our wireframe. And from then we went on to design. So it was really like, let everyone sketch. I think that's a tip that I can give anyone who's planning to do such a thing. Yeah, it's, it's so satisfying, right? Yeah. We actually, another thing we started, I think about half a year ago at this point, is uh, regular design studios. So every time we work on a feature or a product or whatever, every time we kick something off, what we do is gather all the stakeholders in a room, and that can be people from product, people from engineering, the people who are actually building it, not just on the front end, but our back-end engineers. Mm-hmm. And when I say back-end, I mean like actual like back-end, so like Go developers working on like how droplets, so like how virtual private servers are created. Huh. When we say front-end, Rails is included in that, so like <laughs> your say, company and that's... When you say design, <laughs> it's also yeah, Rails included. So, yeah, the stacks are kind of different here. Yeah. But basically, we grab everyone, just even people who are so unfamiliar with the design process and just would have never thought to try and be part of it. We take people from support, maybe. We take like all of the stakeholders, everyone who like might have an interesting perspective, mm-hmm. and we put them in a room and have what is like basically a mini, I wouldn't call it a design sprint, but like the sketching phase of a design sprint. So, over basically two hours. And everyone sketches their ideas out. We have like some, you know, some structure to it. But at the end, what you get is first like a ton of perspectives. So yeah. as a designer, I'm not thinking the way a developer thinks. I'm not thinking the way like a systems developer thinks. And I'm not thinking the way a support person does who's confronted with our users every day. Yeah. So you get a better product because you get like, I guess, a, a bigger range of perspectives. And on the other side, you also get a lot of trust in the design process. So developers who have never felt like they were part of anything the company ships on the front end, so anything our users actually see, they might be heavily involved and like very responsible for how things work and how things like just work day to day, but they've never felt like something that actually like is in front of users, they own a part of, like I made this. And so after that, you, you get this feeling of like, wow, I've never had a say. Like I've created these things, but I've never had a say for like how they end up being structured. And there's a lot of like happiness around it. It's like a very positive experience. Yeah. And I think it makes the entire company kind of trust the design organism that we have here way more. Yeah, that makes sense. Total sense. So that's awesome. Uh, so... Noam, you had a question? Yeah, I wanted to go back for a second. You mentioned that every time you doubled the size of your company, you had to learn how to like communicate. So we kind of had, I think, the same situation where in the past, since I've been here like a year and a half, we went from like 70 or 80 to 300. And it wasn't easy. And you can kind of feel shifts every you know, six months or so when a big chunk of people show up, like a new chunk of people. You feel it in the company. I was wondering if any insights you have from what you went through, either as a manager of other like larger amount of designers or just in the company in general. Yeah. So the design organization has just gotten better, I think. So so like we haven't gotten to the size where we're like, okay, this is too big to manage. I think we're about to get to that size where we'll have to like rethink how we do stuff. Right. The organization as a whole though, there's like instead of just being a tiny developer team of like, I don't know, thirty odd developers, now we have five engineering managers on different teams. And now work is routed through product managers. So there's need, there needs to be more structure. When you're small, you can like move super fast. And just like, I'm trying to remember where I read this. Oh, yeah, it was a new post by Rands, who's, I think, director of engineering now at Pinterest. He wrote an amazing book called Managing Humans, which like I take a lot of inspiration from. And I learned a lot from about like managing a team. Right. So he says, just like when you're small, 
you know everyone, but you don't just know them. You know what their responsibilities are. You know what their skill sets are. Right. So very easily you can say like, oh, who's going to be able to do this thing? Well, probably Dave, because Dave has knowledge in the system and Dave like can, can build this out really fast and like, let me go ask him. Because Dave doesn't really have a manager because like startups don't really think about this stuff that much. Right. And when you're, when you're at a bigger size, Dave has an entire team. He has tons of responsibilities. There's like a pipeline of tickets in Jira. And it's not, you're not able to like go to Dave and say, hey, Dave, can you build this real quick anymore? It just doesn't work. Right. So you need systems. I mean, process is there where you need it, basically, where the lack of process doesn't work. Do you feel that the and, processes were slowing you down? Like in general, was it, did it help yeah. in the long run? Okay, so the processes are like definitely slowing you down. There's no process in the world that isn't in some ways slowing you down. But it's also making stuff better, right? A design process is going to turn like, I made this thing real quick and I didn't do any user testing and I didn't do any like even user stories or thinking about it in a certain way. Like I didn't apply any methodologies that were preset. You're not going to get that good a product. You're going to do it so fast but you're not going to end up with something good. And I think on an organizational level, it's kind of the same thing. It's like the organization might function very quickly, but it's not going to function as well without the right processes. You're not going to end up building the right stuff or prioritize the right stuff. You're not going to work at, yeah, not just like the best quality, not in the best way, I think. Right. Yeah, so you mentioned methodologies, and I would like to just dig a bit deeper on that one. So what are the methodologies that you have in your design team when you guys get a new feature and you like a brief for a new feature or so do you have any written down yeah. and like structured? We do have some written down and structured. That's also very much in flux. We didn't used to have it. Mm-hmm. That was part of my role was figuring out a lot of stuff on the design team because when I became the lead for the team, We didn't have any processes in place at all. It was just like, this is your project, figure it out. Uh, yeah. There weren't any, many like, again, we were structured totally differently. So now the way we're structured is each product designer has a product manager. They're like very tight knit. Mm-hmm. They work on one of our products. So one product vertical. So everything that has to do with, say, question mark, because I can't really say it. <laughs> yeah, okay. But like we have... five or six products in the works. We have some products that are going like community and what we call customer experience, which is like working on the cloud on like onboarding, tagging, like some cool stuff that we have planned. Uh-huh. And we have a bunch more. And each one of these has a product designer and a product manager, and they work very closely mm-hmm. to kind of validate ideas, to figure out what to even build. So in some cases, we're like, maybe we should build a Slack bot. So it's like totally open. Yeah. And... They work very closely, and basically it's the designer's job to really own a product. And so in the past, it wasn't really that way. It was just like, we're one design team. We're not part of product teams. So product teams just also come with engineers. Yeah. Right? So it's like one, it's uh, vertical teams, product, engineering, and design versus horizontal teams, or actually maybe the other way around. Yeah, yeah horizontal teams. Yeah, like product teams that basically are like a small startup to launch a product by its own. Yeah, exactly. And so in the past, we were just like, hey, we're one design team. We kind of sit together. There's maybe one product manager, and each one of us gets some work. And, yeah. and we didn't have enough like, engineers or enough structure to actually get everything done. So you'd end up with like, tons of designs that never got made. And now we have the opposite problem. We have like, way more than enough engineers and not enough designers. So I'm just like, I need to recruit people. Bottleneck. <laughs> yeah. We just became a bottleneck. It's like, not a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so a design process. Yeah. It's hard to say we have a very specific design process. Mm-hmm. What we do have, let me see if I can bring it up, is a design checklist. Okay. So I don't like being very conscriptive of yeah. like what people have to do exactly. Mm-hmm. I, in general, the way I see running a team, and I've written a blog post about this, I think trust is really important. Yeah. And I think that without it, you're not going to be able to scale an organization. So if I have to make sure that every person is doing their jobs and every person is aligning to a certain level, then I can do that for three or four people, maybe five, but I can't do that for 20 people. Yeah. So 
it's very important to like build into the culture a lot of flexibility and a lot of just like use your judgment and just hire people with good judgment. And yeah. so instead of going like full force and saying, hey, do this and then do this and then do this and then do this, what we do instead is say, here's a checklist. Just make sure that before you ship this product, you've checked off everything on the list. Yeah. So we have a bunch of things. First is vet the idea. So we work very closely with product, but not in a sense where we just get handed down a spec and we're like, okay, cool. And product, and this isn't like us warring with product. Everyone in DigitalOcean generally just like works together with a common goal. So this is just like make sure the idea carries weight because okay. a product manager coming up to you with an idea doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right one. It usually is. Like, we have amazing product managers, but vet ideas on here kind of like as a safety net. Yeah, I mean, the designer's job is to ask the right questions. Make sure. Yeah, that's exactly. Validated. The second thing here is a design studio, which I mentioned beforehand. So we want every single feature and every single product to go through a design studio with relevant stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And that's to increase transparency of like what we're working on, that's to increase trust, and that's to like gain perspective. So putting it on here isn't just to say like the product's going to be better, but it's like every product is an opportunity for the entire organization to trust the design team more. Okay, I want to elaborate on that a bit. Just so what you're describing is those horizontal teams, but at you as a design lead, you want to also position the design force in the company as a strong kind of like in you want to brand your design team. That's what you're saying. It's, it's kind of like an inner, inner branding inside the company, right? It's the feeling that the company knows they have a strong design team. It's something to, to do with that. Actually, within DigitalOcean, that's never been a problem. DigitalOcean, so if for those who don't know the cloud space, there's like a lot of competition, right? Quote, unquote, in the yeah. cloud space. And DigitalOcean, which is a relatively sparse product in terms of like feature set, right? We do virtual private servers right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, emphasis on right now. And we do it really well, right? We focus on making them really reliable, making them really affordable, and making the experience just amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's all we've done for a very long time, and that's brought us to number two in the entire cloud space. Mm-hmm. And we've been number two for over a year now. Yeah. And the reason we're number two, and this is like pretty widely accepted within the company, at least part of the reason or a good part of the reason, is because of that awesome experience. Because yeah. like you can open DigitalOcean and have a server up and running in, as we say, 55 seconds. And that's not just because we have like really fast servers on the back end, which we do. It's because the design is awesome. Yeah. And like, honestly, the design team doesn't think the design is awesome because we're designers. And I don't think like any design team has ever thought their design was awesome. Yeah. But in terms of like the cloud space, it's great. It's really good. Yeah. I'm taking a picture of the, of the screen. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So at DigitalOcean, like there's an understanding that goes like throughout the entire company I tweeted about this a while ago. I wonder if I can find that. But there's like an understanding that design is one of the big reasons why we are where we are and an understanding of the value of good design. So unlike other companies that I've seen in the past, you never get like an engineer coming up to you and saying like, is it really that important that this interaction works like this? Or like, is it really that important that these pixels align or whatever? Yeah. Everyone understands the value of that. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to, I've never had to explain the merits to anyone of good design. I might have like to make my case for prioritizing it over other stuff, but there's never like, no, it's important because like people understand the importance of it. Yeah. That, like prioritization, you mentioned that. So how do you like when you said you had to convince people the prioritization of design? So how do you do that? How do you work on the prioritization of design, putting it in in front of other things? I mean, usually the design is pushed back 
Okay, I might edit this out, but usually the design is pushed back because business needs come first, then data, because if the data is broken, then, you know, you can't do anything with that. If anything in the code is broken, you can't do anything with it. So, like, user experience is usually pushed back to the last priority, in a way. Mm-hmm. That's at least how I feel. Uh, not that, like, and everybody can, everybody can agree on the importance of user experience and design. Everybody can agree that an emotional connection of the user to the product can bring a lot of results. And, of course, if the user experience is wrong, it can actually ruin the product. But having said that, right. it gets pushed back. Yeah, so there's agreeing and there's believing. Yeah. Agreeing is like, yeah, in theory, okay, this is like probably going to work, but you know what's more important? Increasing conversion. But when you believe something, when you're like, actually, like one of the reasons that we are successful is because people love using our product and you genuinely believe that. Yeah. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about like the rest of the company. So a product manager who's in charge of prioritizing something, you're going to see that in how they prioritize stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you come up to them and you say, listen, you know, I've been designing for a couple of years I have a good understanding of our users and I feel like in my gut that this design is wrong and going to be like really bad for us. Yeah. Then they will give you more time to work on it. Okay. And yeah, and we're getting better with actually getting qualitative data with user testing and quantitative data. But for the most part, design is really important here. Okay. And making a case for it is not like an uphill battle. It's a battle, but it's like not an uphill battle, which I think is really important. Speaking again about prioritization, who decides what features are built next or designed next or developed next? Does it come from like the teams itself or does it come from up above? So product is in charge of that. We have a, so a director of product. We have a chief product officer, a director of product, and then I think about eight product managers now, seven or eight. I'm never good with numbers of teams. I barely, I have to think about how many people are on mine. So generally like product is in charge. It's their responsibility to like build the roadmap. So figure out what's out there, figure out what user needs there are. So we use user voice a lot. We just look at the market a lot, figure out what some business needs are and kind of take everything down and distill it into the next things that are important to build. And they're not like really, you know, like I said, they're not super specific. They're just like, we need some kind of, I can't really give this example, but <laughs> there's like so much I can't say on a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's generally like high level. You know what? It's not like we need this specific product. It's we need to solve this user need. Right. And that's what the roadmap is. And so we develop that into product verticals and we develop that into prioritization for like what to build first. So as a designer, like, do you, you have the power like, to decide what feature to build is based on, let's say we need to add on whatever, another 100,000 users in you know, the next six months or whatever, or open up you know, a certain amount of uh, whatever using your product. So do you just get like a high level detail that this is what we need? Or does it, by the time it gets down, like, down to the design team, is it already basically a feature? So it's less like we need 100,000 users. So it's less about what we need. It's more about what users need or what there's a question, or is it what there's a hypothesis that users need? Right. So it's less like, hey, we need 100,000 users, and it's more like, we could get 100,000 users if we solve this problem for them. Right. And then we figure out how to solve that problem. Okay. So like, there's some scoping to it. There's some like direction and constraints, which I think is good. We're already doing so much as product designers. Like we were talking about, you know, coding, visual design, product design. So like UX, having to like go an extra level and do like the company-wide strategy, I think is just like putting too much on a person that needs to get better at some things. <laughs> yeah, I can totally agree. And, and that brings me actually to something that I wanted to talk to you about. I've seen your lecture, uh, your talk about the anxiety of a full stack Designer's anxiety, how did you call that uh, talk? Yeah, full-stack full anxiety. Full-stack anxiety, right. Because it's not only for the designers, it's also for developers and any, anyone else in the product field. So let's talk about that for a while. Let's talk about how do you see designers today in a way that, first of all, you are this kind of unicorn, you can code, you, can, you, you are a design lead, you are now dealing with management and with building a team, you are dealing with UX methodologies. 
So you have so much stuff that you need to learn in order to improve. And in this talk, and I will share it in the show notes, you were talking about how to prioritize that list because there is only so much that you can learn as a professional person. I mean, there are so many tools, so many frameworks, so many stuff that you can learn and you want to learn because you're curious about this. But, but you know, how do you prioritize what you should learn? So I guess my question to you is, how do you best prioritize? Because... I'll make it like, I don't want you to give the whole talk because that was like a 40 <laughs> minute talk. Yeah. But I'm saying like, whoever wants to view the, view this talk, I'll put it in the show notes and they can watch it. But in general, you were talking about how to prioritize that list. The question is when you have so many tools and the feeling is that the necessity is so pressured on you to learn so many of those tools. So how can you prioritize them? I and you need to know all of them. You need to be like, for me, for instance, I need to be a good designer because I need to lead by example. I need to know how to lead a team and how to manage, how to hire and how to do right interviews. And then how to also onboard those people in the company. And then later I need to know how to mentor them right. And then I need to also like all my design tools, I need to always be on top of that, right? I mean, sketch, using the tools around like sharing, you know, Zeppelin Envision and such. And then you got also principal and prototyping tools, which I experiment with often. And I actually believe that a designer, any designer should code. Noam would have his input soon on this, but I know how to code. I believe that I need to learn more how to code. I know HTML, CSS very well. And that means now I have to go into SCSS, setting up local environments, such and such, because now I want to also do some coding in this company. And... On top of that, I want to learn JavaScript because I think that is the next thing for me in order to develop as a front-end as well. All of this, and I now really need to work on my UX skills because my UX methodologies are kind of weak and I want to learn how to do better user testing. What tools should I use over there because I have no knowledge in that field and how to build design principles for my team. So <laughs> with all of that being said, how do you prioritize all of that? Yeah. So I actually, like, if anyone watches the talk, I set forth, like, a pretty big framework on, like, how to actually get to the, get to a list of things you should learn. So I won't, I won't go too deeply into that. But for me, it's really about what's the most important thing. It's being more thoughtful and intentional about your decisions and not just saying, I want to know everything. Because everyone wants to know everything, right? Everyone, like, who is a designer is inherently curious, right? Inherently, like, wants to grow. Yeah, that's what I think anyway. So they're like, I want to know this and I want to know this and I want to get better at this. And there's so much room to grow. And that's actually what creates the anxiety is just like that, that need to grow. Yeah. But what I think people should do is just look at the big picture and figure out what's what's more important. So accept the fact that you can't learn everything. It just doesn't work. <laughs> like I can't you can't like learn how to prototype and better UX methodologies and how to lead a team and get better at JavaScript and like do all this stuff. Like something's going to give, right? You have limited time. Yeah. My wife. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for instance, <laughs> right. Also like, yeah, fun, fun is important. That's what I'm going to, that's how I'm going to read that. You have to like live a balanced life. And that also means that you can't spread yourself too thin, right? There's a there's a very fine line between someone who's a unicorn, who's like genuinely great at all these things, and someone who's just like really spread thin and just like, I can do everything, but I am kind of like, I want to die. And I'm not that great at everything. So I found myself at a certain point, like being pretty great at UX, at just like product thinking and understanding how to build the right product. And I learned more about UX methodologies Mm-hmm. and really solid at CSS, HTML, and JavaScript. And, you know, a visual designer, I don't think I'm the best visual designer in the world, yeah. but, you know, I can, I'm okay at it. Mm-hmm. But when I became a manager, so for me, and this might be helpful for you because you're kind of in the same position, yeah. a thing they usually say about management is when you're a manager, your job isn't to grow yourself anymore. It's to grow others. Yeah. So... When I became a manager, I was, uh, I mean, my first couple of months, I was like, okay, I need to learn this management thing, but also I need to like get better at UX and get better at front end and learn like these new frameworks. So maybe learn Ember because that's what we're using. Yeah. And I couldn't do that, right? I also like do I have other responsibilities. So like I teach on the side and some other stuff. Yeah. And I just didn't have time for this. And after like some soul searching, I realized that 
I don't have to be the best designer in the world yet. I have like the, the sensibilities and I'm going to keep doing stuff related to that. But really what's important is that I nurture the best designers in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a skill on itself. It's not just me saying, I want to nurture people. Let me do that. It's something to learn. So like I mentioned managing humans and there's other books about it. So like Crucial Accountability is a great book. There's a lot of people who talk about it a lot, like Cap Watkins. I've talked to so, so many more managers in the design and tech space in like Facebook and in, you know, Twitter and some other places. And I like over the past year, I've grown tremendously, not as an IC, like an individual contributor, but as a person who can really push people forward. So like keep people happy and satisfied, keep people on track, keep people like doing their work and like push people to, you know, do better work. Yeah. And that's not easy. So it's not like just doing it and you get better at it. It's another thing like front end, like UX that you have to put time in and learn about from people who are better at it than you and get better at it. So I, I don't know. That's, that was my choice, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't have to be everyone's choice, but that really helped me a lot because it kind of eases that tension of like, Oh, I'm not learning everything. It just like, let's see, okay, right now, this is my focus and I'm going to put all my focus into it. And I'm going to like, this is like my singular focus and I'm going to get better at this. And you see improvement right away where when you're spread thin, you're just like, I can't believe I'm not doing that right now. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of also accepting that you have limited time. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. That sounds like the truth. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I, I want to learn so much, but you know, it's only a limited capacity to what I can learn. So I want to talk about a few more things because we really have to wrap this up. Sure. Okay. So you talked about learning UX. You said that one of the things you wanted to learn is like how to do, how to be a better UX methodology expert. So I want to ask you, how did you learn UX and like what tools did you use or what sources did you use to learn? And also if we can have like this kind of like quick round of what tools you guys use to do your UX methodology. Sure. Documents. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, Where I learned, I had a, a handful of really amazing classes at Parsons when I was studying there. Mm -hmm. So I had Designing for Usability with Maury Galanoy. I had Information Architecture with Abby Covert, who actually wrote an amazing book about it called uh, How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Okay, cool. I had Designing for Touch, which was about mobile design with Jennifer Brooke, who designed, I think, the first iPad app for the New York Times. So I had a handful of like really amazing teachers that really left an impression on me and taught me a lot. And before then, so at that point, I already had some idea of how to figure something out. So like I was wireframing before I was designing. So that's already something. Yeah. Mostly from just like reading Smashing Mag and A List Apart. Yeah. But after that, I started like actually, you know, diving deep into it and changing the way I'm, I was thinking, not just the way I, I was doing stuff. So reading books like, you know, the classics, like Don't Make Me Think and Design of Everyday Things, but also like getting better at UX methodologies like user testing. So reading like remote user testing and rocket science, rocket surgery made easy. Wait, what, what, is it? what is the thing you just said? Rocket Surgery Made Easy. It's another Steve, but it's another book by uh, Steve Craig. Okay. How do you read all those books? How do you have time? <laughs> so this is over years. The, the truth is like, I don't have time. I'm not like super human yeah. or anything. It's... Uh, yeah, maybe audiobooks. Or... <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Audiobooks on like 1.5 speed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was reading like these as a student and yeah. some in my free time. I don't know. I just like, I like those books a lot. There's actually a huge stack of books that I need to read right now that I just can't find time for. What's the one that you're most eager to read right now? So there's eager to read and there's like, I think I need to read. Okay. So both eager one and one. It is probably like, I've had book The Shape of Design for a while by Frank Chimero. Mm -hmm. And I've been meaning to like read that for a while. And there's like a bunch of management books that just like don't seem very fun, but seem like they're going to be very useful. So a lot of this stuff just doesn't read easily, yeah. but just is filled with valuable information. I can try and find what those books are later, but yeah. like they're okay. just like in a list and I don't remember them. Okay. Yeah. So I think in terms of like, if you want to become better at 
UX, and I don't really like that term, right? User experience is kind of like what design is to me now. When I say design, yeah. that's what I well, Everybody does design. Yeah, but to get better at it, you just have, more important than anything, you have to change the way you're thinking. And the more experience you have thinking in a certain way, the better you're going to be at it. Mm-hmm. So like the best way to get better at something is just doing it. But ideally, doing it the way that people with more experience than you have like set the path to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you for that. And now, like, I would like to just do a really quick kind of roundup of the tools that you guys use in your team, if you will. Like, again, like beginning from the basics, Sketch or Photoshop, InVision or any other service prototyping tools that you use, tools for user testings. Just like quick technology, like roundup. So, sure. So, like I said, we're not very conscriptive here. So, we have like three designers designing in Sketch, another one in Illustrator, another one in Photoshop. Like everyone kind of does their own thing. So, a lot of them just prototype with our. So, we built a style guide with uh, BEM principles. If you if you know them, so block element modifier. It's just a CSS methodology, mm-hmm. um, and it makes it really easy to prototype designs. So a lot of them just go straight to CSS and work in that. And then you have like the existing styles like ready to go. So that's how we usually design beforehand pen and paper. Usually I don't know if anyone just like uses Axure or yeah, probably no one. I think someone uses Balsamic, but like usually like whiteboards, pen and paper, a lot of documents for like specking things out. Yeah. Yeah. Do designers write specs? Oh, for ourselves, not for like, not like official specs, but just like figuring, figuring designs out is like, what should this do? Stuff like that. Uh-huh. Okay. That's just part of like our process to design. Again, not everyone does this. We use Slack for everything. So like we have yeah. a bunch of teams, we have a design review team that where people can just stick things in. We've tried to use Wake in the past for design critique that didn't really work out. Now we're trying to use Relay IO. Mm-hmm. which integrates really heavily with with uh sorry with slack mm-hmm. and that's been like more successful but still not the best yeah uh, mostly because people aren't using it that much mm-hmm. and after like we send stuff out we have stuff like full story that kind of records a sample set of how people use the actual app yeah and we can get some qualitative data from that uh, full story is awesome by the way like I had a demo uh, we're not using it yet but we might be Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's also like an amazing design. I, I love it. It's so delightful and, and whimsical. But yeah, so the actual tools we use, I don't think are, are very set. And I think there's a lot of variation between the team. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get to the point where this design checklist gets everyone kind of working, not the same way, but puts everything we release in the same level. Okay. Sounds good. A couple more questions. Tips for hiring process, like a few really practical tips that you can maybe share from your experience about hiring designers. Okay, cool. So everyone who lives in New York, please shut the podcast down right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I am recruiting is another thing that I learned from people who are better than me. Mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of people, and the main thing is recruiting is just a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Until you recruit, you don't know how much work it is. Yeah. And it requires a lot of manual work. You can't automate it. Yeah. So, Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're a small team still. We're six people. Each person owns a product. We don't have the time or the bandwidth to train someone junior up. We need to hire people who we can fully trust from like day one, so after our onboarding process. Yeah. And that really narrows the pool. So, you know, being, if you were just like hiring in the U.S., a good thing to know is like most of the designers who, have, who are proven go to San Francisco. So most of them are there. Yeah. There's a pretty great pool of them in New York, but most of them are happy. So successfully recruiting requires a long time. I mean, the designer, we had the designer start on Monday, and it took me probably two months to... get him and, and that's a short time by the way like I think we're in the similar position like in Israel also very small country people who do great look at yourself are in the US really like a lot of the talents we have in Israel just go to the US uh, New York and San Fran and then the ones that are actually really really talented 
either they're freelance and they want to keep being freelance, they will never trade it for anything in the world because they make a lot of money, or they go to like this big company and then it's really, really hard to take them because they're in like a key role in this big company. So yeah. Yeah. So, so it's tough. Mostly it's just like when you're trying to recruit someone, don't see that as the only end goal. So when I try to recruit someone, I'm not trying to recruit them. I think they're an awesome designer, which in turn means I think they're probably a pretty interesting person. Yeah. And I just try to make friends. So I genuinely try to like get to know these people. And worst case, we're like great friends at the end. And we like know each other and like each other. And your network grows. And, yeah. and growing your network is not like a roundabout way to recruit someone. It's the best way to recruit someone. It's better than just coming to someone and cold calling them. It's yeah. just... So a lot of like the writing I've done, a lot of the stuff I've done to like increase my visibility has been actually around recruiting mm-hmm. and just us DigitalOcean being more visible in the space. And I think a lot of the other designers on the team are doing similar stuff. Yeah. The next thing I think I'm going to do is just say, and this isn't just say, this is like a thing I've put a lot of thought into and a lot of people have talked to me about it, is start making hiring a responsibility of the rest of the team as well. Yeah. So as a designer on the DigitalOcean product design team, one of your responsibilities, along with like designing everything, is growing the design team. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean like, you know, spend all of your free time doing it. That means I am going to give you time during the week to put time into this. You hear that, Noam? You got like three hours every week. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll take three hours <laughs> if I can get it. <laughs> I mean, it's worth it. It's like, it's the most important thing it's like as a as a design lead at least the most important thing i can do right now is grow a strong team of designers that i can trust yeah okay yeah it sounds good yeah i wanted to ask you about that and you mentioned it before about one of your roles as a lead designer how do you keep your designers motivated i'm assuming you kind of mentioned that all the good ones go to san fran where it's hard to keep them there how do you have i'm sure you have talented designers there how do you keep them motivated happy satisfied not looking to go to other places yeah, growth plans. So figure out where people want to grow. And that doesn't mean like, you know, spy on them or try and figure it out yourself. It means like literally ask them and put a framework in place to ask them. I, I guess constant honesty. So we're all friends. You know, the fact that I manage the team doesn't mean that I'm not, I don't genuinely care about everyone. And everyone knows that. And I think everyone genuinely cares about me as well. And so we end up with this very transparent culture where people can come to me and say, listen, I'm not really happy doing things this way. I would prefer to do it that way. And that might be just like, I don't want to sit over here. I prefer to sit over there. And that's going to make me better at what I do. Yeah. Right. It also could be, hey, I'm really interested in this one thing that I haven't had time to grow on. And you could say, okay, take some time and do that thing. And maybe we'll find some space for that. So it's just finding the ways that people can grow in the directions they're interested in growing. And a lot of that is pushing them to figure out what they're interested in doing, because most people have no idea. And just letting them do those things. So that's one thing. The other thing is that DigitalOcean just has the most amazing perks, and they kind of take care of that for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, last question about hiring. Do you do like what do you have a test for people that you hire after they pass the interviews and such? Do they have a, some kind of uh, actual practical test? Yeah, it's so it's pre-interview. It's a paid design assignment. Mm-hmm. And it's changed a lot. So initially it was just like choose out of these three things and make a like make a mock or something and present it to us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what that ended up being is we got a great understanding for how people could do user interface. So not just the visuals, but like how interactions could make sense. But we didn't get a feel for how someone could do research or how someone could figure out how to design a system. So we're trying to push our design assignment towards that. And we're thinking of like maybe getting rid of the design assignment and just doing whiteboard exercise if we can find the right one. Mm -hmm. So there's like... It's changing a lot, and I can't say we've been super successful with it so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I also, I like, I have a design test that I'm doing, but it's really, I can't say it has been successful as well. And I think one of the other things that design tests lack is the ability to know how the person 
reacts to feedback. So one of the things that I tried to do is after they send me the design test, we go over it together and I give the person feedback. And that's kind of like a, a second interview without them knowing. So if they are really protective, I'm like, okay, so that person has ego on this and that level. And then if they're really like cool with it, then, you know, they pass that test kind of. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, I feel you on that one as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting to find the ultimate test designers could pass because without a test, it's very hard. You can't just get anyone without test. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of stuff like um, here designed, how would this alarm clock work with these constraints? And so you have to start figuring out a creative solution and it's more about process. And then you add more constraints and they're like, oh, how would I solve that? So that sounds good. I, I don't know. Like, honestly, like I'm, I'm such like, I'm such a noob at some of this stuff. <laughs> if anybody But on yeah. the show, if anybody that is hearing this has like a winning, I don't know, hiring process, please share it with us and we'll host you <laughs> on a special episode. <laughs> yes, please, please share it with all of us. Yeah. All right, Joel, last topic that I want to talk to you about, because I mean, we way over time is about the designing coding kind of thing so it's like a debate and i know it's a dying horse like talking about it i actually wrote a, an article about that about a month ago and i got so much like bad feedback about that article on designer news <laughs> that was amazing it was like why are you talking about this like this decision has been made like da, 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 da. and like and i think that the the reason that it got so much feedback and so much like kind of noise over it is because this is not dead. This subject is not dead yet. So uh, I'm a designer who can code. Noam here, not in a bad way, but you're not a coder. But Noam has very solid explanation why not all designers should code. And I actually tend to agree with that. But how do we do it? Like, how do we structure this kind of uh, discussion? And like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it goes back and forth. I think it depends. Everything in design or everything in life ends up with like the answer. It depends. Yeah. I don't think all designers need to code. I think in many cases, coding is going to be extremely useful to someone. So I, I can tell you a story of just like where designers who code has been a problem for us. So as a design team, Or I guess as just me as a designer and, and some other people, and then as we grew into the design team to state our responsibility, we were in charge and responsible for all the front-end code that DigitalOcean shipped, as in all of it, in terms of like HTML and CSS and interaction JavaScript mm -hmm. for a very long time. And that created a culture of us learning more and more about how to code. So like, oh, how do we do this? I guess we can make these icons with SVG and maybe we should do it with icon fonts. And then that's a rabbit hole and someone goes down that for a week. And then it's like, how do we, you know, how do we do this other thing? Should we structure it with BEM or should we do it with something else? And that's another rabbit hole. Yeah. And another thing is just like, how do we solve this bug? And so you end up caring about code more than I think designers should. And we ended up just like learning more and got to the point where we were like, hey, the entire design team should probably learn Ember because that's what DigitalOcean is using. And we like we are in charge of the code. Yeah. And so I think the first thing I did when I took the team over was say, okay, we're not coding anymore. <laughs> Because A, it's that kind of full stack thing. If you spend some of your time on code, some of your time on design, on like visual design, some on UX, some on like different tools, you're not going to be the best developer. Yeah. And front end developers, people who spend their time on this are just a million miles ahead of most designers I know. Okay. Not everyone. Some designers I know are just like ridiculous, but I think as a designer, it's reaching too far to try and be good at everything. It kind of goes back to the full stack anxiety thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of taking it to, to a large extent. But coding can take you away from the most important thing about your role, which is the design process, which is you are the voice for the design process and for the users. And when you spread yourself thin and get away from that, that can be really dangerous. It did... Anyway, for us, on yeah. the flip side, I think understanding the medium with which you're working, and I think this is usually the argument for learning the code, is really important. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I could have personally gotten to where I was without at least having some context for like what developers are doing, what's possible. It saves so much time for back and forth. 
And it also lets us, so we still do HTML and CSS static mockups with our style guide, and we're in charge of our style guide. So learning at least how to make stuff, so not JavaScript maybe, but learning how to build stuff with CSS and HTML, I don't think in this industry today, many people can get away without knowing that. Right. Just to defend the fact that I don't code. It's not um, By the way, no, I, I can I, I'll say that I learned many, when I finished design school, I didn't know any code and I took it just a short course just to learn it a bit. Cause I realized I needed to know something about the web, like how it works. And I learned when I did learn it, I knew how to code again, not anything with JavaScript or anything, but basic HTML, CSS. And I found that basically everywhere I worked afterwards, it was never needed of me. I mean, there's always somebody, like you said, who is miles better than me at this, who's much, much better. And I realized that the knowledge of how stuff works was enough. I'm pretty sure that if I was, you know, a freelance or in a small startup or I had to do more stuff, I'd find myself coding. And I did in the beginning a bit because I needed it. And then you just use it. But I kind of agree with what you're saying is that I'd rather focus on the design aspect or the user experience aspect, or even personally, if I had to think what I wanted to learn next, I'd want to learn a uh, prototyping tool very, very well, animation tool. I think that would, that would, it would make it easier for me to, to try to explain what I'm trying to visualize and make it work better or move better than just than adding on learning, like just hard coding to my skill set on a high level, because I was going to be somebody in any company that's like, I'm assuming somewhat decent. will have somebody who's going to be a hundred times better than me at any point. And as long as I can communicate with them, I think that's, uh, I feel that's enough. So that, that's, that's my side of not spending my free time on learning how to code. Yeah, I mean, communication is key. I guess the bottom line for me is I just, I don't care that much about this. Like, it is kind of a dead horse, I think. It's just like, everyone's going to have their own opinion forever. That's why there were negative, like, things yeah. on, your, on your article. Yeah. No one's ever going to be of the same mind about anything, I think. So this is like kind of a tangent, but... I would love if they change it to like, should designers mark up or should designers like learn HTML and CSS? Yeah. Because should designers code is like so, like such a big question. Yeah. I have actually, also like HTML and CSS isn't technically coding. It's not programming. It's like markup languages or style languages. Yeah. I have a friend who made a website that just says like, should designers blank? And it just puts stuff in there. <laughs> nice. It's like, you can have this conversation about everything. It's become such a meme. Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is always, it depends. So like, Nam might, might get very far without knowing anything about HTML or CSS or JavaScript, and it might not affect his career at all. And like a lot of really heavy UX people who people who don't just like know UX, right? Yeah. You and I might know some UX methodologies, but I'm talking about people who like never open Photoshop, never open code, and all of their work is like figuring out systems and doing user testing and doing information architecture. Yeah. Those people never need to code. So like as a product designer, inherent to the fact that you're carrying so much responsibility, you're going to be not as good as other people at all of the stuff you do, unless yeah. you're a superhero. And I think that's fine. I think there's a lot of strength in being a generalist and being able to like pull all of these different fields together. Yep. But I don't think everyone has to. And that's also like the, the main premise of my talk is just like, you do you, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I do go with the, like on the back of my mind, I have like being a jack of all trades, but a master of some. Which is like, you know, this thing that was, I don't remember who quoted it. I think it was like a... <laughs> yeah. So a, a T-shaped designer or a W-shaped yeah. designer. Yeah. Yeah. So that sums up our time. Joel, thank you so much for being on the show. Anything to plug before we go? Basically, we're hiring. <laughs> okay. Any, any awesome product designers in New York or in the U.S. or anywhere actually and just want to relocate... Definitely reach out. We're looking for great people. Noam, again, don't ever think about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you just want to talk about this stuff, you can reach out to me at Twitter at NotDetails, N-O-T-D-E-T-A-I-L-S. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Cool, Joel. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. And we learned a lot. We'll share everything in the show notes there, all the books that you said. And so, Joel, thank you so much for being with us today. It was amazing. And we hope to maybe follow up sometime with another episode. So take care and thank you very much. Thank you.
everybody, what's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So just wanted to let you know that, first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders. And that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.